Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Hey, shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana. I hope you guys are doing well. It has been a few weeks since we put out a new episode, and uh, we are in the midst of the fall Moedim, the fall feast days, the high holy days. And so I really wanted to uh, get on and put out an episode uh, about the month of Elul and Rosh Hashanah and Yamim Noraim and Yom Kippur and all this incredible, incredible season that we are currently in. Uh, before I do that, I hope you guys are all doing well, guys and gals. Again, thank you for uh, being such a wonderful part of this amazing community. And uh, for those of you that are listening for the first time, Welcome. I hope that you find the conversation uh, interesting and enjoyable and challenging. And uh, for those of you guys that have listened for a while, thank you. You are uh, the best. I hope your families are well. I hope everybody is well. Uh, so we just recently, this last weekend, uh, as of this recording, which is September the 19th, 2023, we recently uh, celebrated uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah. And uh, I hope that you had a wonderful, beautiful Rosh Hashanah and uh, with your, yourself or with your community or however you celebrate it. And we are this week preparing ourselves. We are in what we call Yamim Noraim, right? The days of awe, uh, the 10 days uh, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur or Yom HaKippurim, where we are preparing our hearts for Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement or Atonements, as it's talked about in the Torah. And so this is a very special time. This is a very intense time. And so uh, this is kind of, uh, as I've seen historically and traditionally, kind of our last uh, last chance to really kind of get things right, uh, both between Hashem and ourselves and between ourselves and uh, our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, those around us. So that's what we're going to be talking about um, in today's episode. And I want to talk about um, about both uh, repentance and what that looks like, and then and forgiveness and what that looks like. So segment one, we'll talk about repentance, and then segment two, we'll talk about forgiveness. And listen, don't sleep on this episode. Uh, don't get the lullaby effect and think, yeah, okay, gosh, there's somebody else talking about repentance. I've heard it all before. There's a good chance you haven't heard this stuff before. Um, and then on forgiveness, you know, uh, no matter where you're coming at in the for- uh, coming from in the forgiveness spectrum. Uh, some stuff you might want to listen to. So, as is our custom, let's begin by asking the Father to bless our time together and giving Him honor for allowing us to be together today. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and King, we bless you and thank you for this time together. I pray, Father, that everyone listening, including myself, the one doing the speaking, uh, is challenged by the words that we hear today, your word, the words of the sages, the words of those that have come before us, and that this year would be a sweet, sweet year. Amen.
All right, the month of Elul is wrapping up, and uh, the time of the month of Elul, Elul is over. Excuse me, uh, but the time of Elul uh, is is uh, wrapping up, and we are, like I said before, now that we've crossed the Yom Truah or Rosh Hashanah, we're in what we call Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, and uh, of course, Elul uh, has traditionally been given the uh, the acronym Ani Ladodi Vadodi Li, right? For the uh, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine, and it's this idea uh, that the king is in the field, right? These are all very very common uh, Elul uh, illusions that we have come to understand and know. Uh, and there's this question that arises in uh, in discussion about well. Uh, you know, God is always near. So what is this thing with him being in the field? And like, can't we get forgiveness anytime and, you know, all throughout the year? And what's so special about this? And um, this is true. And uh, the sages of Judaism have grappled with this question. Um, and they base this idea of the king being closer during this time, uh, mostly off of this verse from Isaiah chapter 55, uh, verse 6. Where it says, "Seek Adonai, seek God, Elohim, uh, while He is to be found." Well, what does that mean, right? If God is always there, so this is this is as the Bible often does: is this push and pull, this give and take, kind of of like God is always available, and yet maybe maybe it's that we are not always near, right? Maybe Hashem is always desires to be close to us, and yet we are not always the ones who are uh, desirous to be close to Him, and so. This is push and pull, you know, of, of whether whether God is close to us or not, or maybe whether we are close to him or not. So uh, this year for uh, Elul, in preparation for Elul, um, you know, I grew up in church, as most of you know, have listened. And um, so, you know, ideas like repentance and forgiveness and those things are very uh, common, you know, to us who have a history in, in the faith. Um, and yet they can become almost too common. And, and every once in a while we have to uh, not redefine them just for, you know, just for redefinition's sake, but sometimes we have to revisit them and just turn the diamond, as it were, and look at another facet, look through another facet and see if there's something maybe that can enhance uh, our understanding of Teshuvah. So uh, that's what I've done this year. Uh, and looking at the word Teshuvah and repentance, um, you know, generally it means, you know, to turn away uh, or to, you know, to turn back from um, and yet, there's another aspect of this word that doesn't get a lot of play, which means return. And I think it doesn't get a lot of play in the idea of a return because, well, maybe it's because in in so many theologies, um, human beings are separated from God irreparably, irreparably separated from God. And it's like, well, how do you return to someplace you've never been, Right. Uh, and so the idea is that in order to embrace salvation, we have to uh, leave our sin and turn first to Hashem. And uh, there's a lot of discussion that could go into this, and I don't want to take up the whole segment talking about this because I, I want to get some some good practical stuff uh, that has to deal with with uh, repentance, the steps of repentance. But in in thinking about the this a little bit more. Uh, the idea that we return is a really powerful uh, variation or enhancement of the idea of teshuvah, or, or you, some people may say it's the very foundation of the word of teshuvah, um, because the idea of return is that there's there's three 
really places to which we are challenged to return. Uh, the first, of course, is to re- return to Hashem. Well, how do you return to Hashem if you've never been there in the first place? Um, see, if, if you if you think of people as lost, right, sinners, unbelievers, uh, that that has has acquired in modern Christianity the connotation uh, that they that God never knew them, they never knew God. There's this this like I said, this irreparable chasm in between them. Um, and yet the scripture tell us that tells us that we are all created by Hashem. So we may not really have a connection to to him, but he definitely has a connection to us. And in reality, we do have a connection to him. He is our maker. Even though we have strayed from him, we can in all in all accuracy of the definition, we can return even if we've never made a profession of faith or you know given our allegiance to Yeshua or we even if we've never done any of those things that religious people tell us we have to do we actually can return to Hashem even if we you know people think we've never known him before because we all knew him at one point he created us number 2 is we have a return to our neighbors and our brothers and sisters Broken relationships, relationships that aren't great, relationships that are on the rocks. We can return to those healthier relationships. That's the second kind of aspect of return. And the third one, and the one that I find probably the most fascinating right now and the most uh, brain melting, (laughs) is the idea of returning to yourself. And this has been a really fun one for me to explore this year. And uh, and challenging all at the same time, uh, returning to yourself. Why has it been challenging? Well, it's been challenging because um, I have this uh, this still kind of this Calvinist uh, total depravity idea lurking around in my in my background, right? Where um, you're just a sinner saved by grace. You never do anything right. All your righteousness is filthy rags, right? Uh, this this kind of toxic you know doctrine that we've been taught where like god never really did like you um he just has to save you because he's good and apparently that's part of his job description uh but it doesn't mean he likes you or any of this stuff that he has to do right it's just really toxic and um so but this idea of returning to yourself is this idea that uh that hashem is our maker and what he made was good right and what he intended for us was good when he when he saw the world needed you he what he planned was good and the person that he created he formed in your mother's womb to fulfill that plan that he saw history in need of that was good too the being is good um and that when you were born you were good right and so there's uh you know there's original sin and that all total, total depravity and all the stuff kind of stuff that we have to weed back through and think back through um in order to to embrace you know some of these uh some of these better aspects of of teshuvah and of, of repentance or return so returning to yourself well what does that mean well returning to the original intent that god had for you um returning to the person that you really want to be returning to the person that maybe you were previously but you've gotten off track in some ways right uh, in some areas and just so just an overall return so three beautiful ways to uh to return and in my search for just some new uh, and expansion on the idea of teshuva, uh, I turned to the Rambam, uh, Moses, uh, Maimonides, 
and uh, he has a work called Repentance uh, Teshuva in his in his big work called Mishneh Torah. Um, and I want to read a couple of excerpts from Mishneh Torah, and then I want to get into five steps of repentance. And uh, so, real quick, we're going to read these, and I want to comment on them a little bit, and then we'll talk about the five steps. So, first of all, he says, this is in chapter 1, uh, section 1. Uh, he says, and by the way, this can be found on uh, Safaria, uh, S-E-F-A-R-I-A, safaria.com, uh, I believe it is, or .org, one of those two. Uh, if you just search Safaria, it'll come up. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful repository of Jewish literature. Uh, being translated and added to every single day. Uh, And you can find this there if you'd like to do some reading. It says, If a person transgresses any of the mitzvot of the Torah, whether a positive command or a negative command, whether willingly or inadvertently, there's two categories there, when he repents and returns from his sin, see that return, right? He must confess before God, blessed is he. As Numbers 5, 6 through 7 states, if a man or woman commit any of the sins of man, they must confess the sin that they committed. This refers to a verbal confession. This confession is a positive command. In other words, a you shall. How does one confess? He states, quote, I implore you, God, I sinned, I transgressed, I committed iniquity before you by doing the following. Behold, I regret and embarrassed for my deeds. I promise never to repeat this act again. These are the essential elements of confessional prayer. Whoever confesses profusely and elaborates on these matters is worthy of praise. Those who bring sin offerings or guilt offerings must also confess their sins when they bring their offerings or sacrifices for their inadvertent or willful transgressions. Their sacrifices will not atone for their sins until they repent and make a verbal confession. As Leviticus 5.5 states, he shall confess the sin he has committed upon it. So I want to stop right here. We're almost done with this section, but I want to stop right here and make this point. This is a huge point that we have to understand. Um, we've taught this before. I've, I've talked about this ad nauseum. The offerings uh, described in the Torah, could they, can, they cannot forgive. They cannot provide atonement unless there is a repentance accompanying it or preceding it, right? So you don't just go throw an animal's blood on the altar and walk away and go, well, that's done. Now I can go back to what I was doing. You don't you don't commit a sin going, that's okay, I'm going to the temple later, and the priest is going to throw some blood for me. I'm bringing an animal. You, it doesn't work that way. Um, your kavanah, your intention, your heart, where your heart is turned to, that's the point. And the offerings only would serve as a physical uh, show of what's happened already in your mind. And so... It goes on to say, similarly, those obligated to be executed or lashed by the court do not attain atonement through their death or lashing unless they repent and confess. This is this is crazy. Right. So if you if you commit a sin, you 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 uh, break a mitzvah and the, the penalty for that is lashes or death. Just because you get your lashes doesn't mean that you're atoned for. Just because you die, just because you succumb to the death penalty does not mean that your sins are atoned for. You have to repent um, verbally, and we'll talk about what that looks like in a little bit. I think that's 
very interesting. Similarly, someone who injures a colleague or damages his property does not attain atonement even though he pays him what he owes until he confesses and makes a commitment never to do such a thing again as implied by the phrase in Numbers. Uh, there's a phrase in Numbers, any of the sins of man. Anyway, so I think this is interesting as well, this this last part about you know hurting a, a brother because we have focused in our teachings, if you follow any of our teachings, uh, on Shabbat, any of our services on Shabbat, 10 a.m. Central, just a quick plug, uh, Out of Ashes Ministries, Facebook page, YouTube, uh, or website, uh, or even, um, uh, yeah, website. Um, we, we've heard of us, we've talked a lot about this year, we focused on um, not only the confession part, uh, because we're pretty good at that. In coming, Most of us who have come from different backgrounds, church backgrounds, we're pretty good at the confession part. That's part of what we grow up as, you know, confessing sin with our with our mouth. And then we kind of do our best to turn from our sin, but we realize, like, we're only frail humans, and we're probably not going to, but it's okay because God understands. Um, the sin between, a, between people, we tend to adopt the practice of, well, I'll ask if I hurt somebody, I'll ask God to forgive me for hurting that person, and and I know God is faithful and just to forgive, so then I don't have to worry about anything else. Once God says I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. The problem with that is that God did not hurt that other person. You did, or I did, and I am more and more fully convinced as I study uh, sin and I study repentance and these things this year, I'm more and more convinced that God is nearly uninvolved, nearly 100% uninvolved in the sin and restoration between humans. What do I mean by that? Well, yes, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. However, we have passage after passage from the Gospels, from the Torah, from the New Testament, that if you hurt someone else, God doesn't want to have anything to do with you until you make that right. Whether you make repentance and restoration or whether you receive repentance and re- whatever, you, you either end. God is not going to get involved because God is not the what we have to understand is that we are each life is a universe. Each life is a living stone of the temple. And whenever I offend or abuse or manipulate or hurt a fellow brother or sister or a fellow human for that matter, then I have basically desecrated the the temple of Adonai. Then when I do that, it's not God's business to make it right. It's my business to make it right. And that's what we're going to talk about when we talk about confession. So uh, it's it's we have focused more. We, we, we in Christianity have tended to be really good on the, well, I'll just confess and then everything's good. So this year, last couple of years, we focused really more on the rest, uh, restoration. Um, not only just telling the friend you hurt, the person you hurt, hey, I'm sorry, but actually restoring what you did. And so this is part of of this. Uh, in the next chapter uh, on Teshuva in Mishneh Torah, this is chapter 2.3, he says, Anyone who verbalizes his confession without resolving in his heart to abandon sin can be compared to a person who immerses himself in a mikvah while holding the carcass of a lizard in his hand. Not a good thing. His immersion will not be of avail until he casts away the carcass. The principle is implied in the statement from Proverbs 28.13. He who confesses and forsakes his sins will be treated with mercy. It is necessary to mention particularly one's sins as evidenced by Moshe's confession. I appeal to you the people have committed a terrible sin by making a golden idol. So, 
Uh, here's another section from later on. Uh, I'm sorry, this is from uh, still from chapter two. It says, "Who had reached? Who has reached complete teshuva? A person who confronts the same situation in which he sinned, when he has the potential to commit the sin again, and nevertheless abstains and does not commit it." Because of his teshuva alone and not because of a fear or lack of strength. So this is a profound statement that real and true teshuva is whenever you're presented with the same temptation again and you resist not because you're scared of being caught or not because but because you made a decision, you returned from that thing and you're not going to go back. The New Testament says like a dog to its vomit, right? Um, later on in the chapter, it says Teshuva and Yom Kippur only atone before, but between sins before between man and God, only atone for sins between man and God. This is what I was talking about earlier. For example, a person who ate a forbidden food and are engaged in forbidden sexual relations and the like. However, sins between man and man, for example, someone who injures a colleague, curses a colleague, steals from him or the like will never be forgiven unless he gives his colleague what he owes him and appeases him. It must be emphasized that even if a person restores the money that he owes, the person he wronged, he must appease him and ask him to forgive him. Even if a person only upset a colleague by saying certain things, he must appease him and approach him repeatedly until he forgives him. This is sounding kind of New Testament, right? If if his colleague does not desire to forgive him, he should bring a group of three of his friends and approach him with the request of forgiveness. Does this sound New Testament to anybody? If the wrong party is not appeased, he should repeat the process a second and a third time. Our New Testament tells us bring someone before the elders, and then if they won't work, or take the elders with you, take a friend with you, bring before the elder. Right? There's an increasing, uh, there's this idea of continuing to try, right? Uh, and so it says, if he still does not want to forgive him, then he may let him alone and not pursue the matter further. On the contrary, the person who refuses to grant forgive to grant forgiveness is the one considered as the sinner. In other words, if you do your best to make amends in these in these next few days before Yom Kippur, if you do your best to make amends with people and they refuse to forgive you after you have done everything in your power to make that right, then the sin becomes theirs. I think that's really interesting. It says, on the contrary, uh, let's see, the above does not apply if the wrong party was one's teacher. He's to go to him over and over and over. So let's talk about five steps of repentance. This might spill over into the next segment, but we're, I want to I want to get to this because it's good. All right, number one, this is a pull derived from the Rambam's t- uh, teachings and repentance. Number one, confession. Now, confession is not apology. We'll get to apology later. Confession. Own what you did. No hedging. No defense, no, no, but, and if you only knew, and I did it because, own what you did. Confess what you did, either to Hashem or to the person who you wronged, just what it is. I did this. Not, I was justified, not, you don't understand, not, let me explain. I did it. This is what I said. This is what I did. This is what I said to him, her, her. And listen to this point. Confession must be at least as public as the harm. That's huge. So if you hurt somebody privately face-to-face, you go to them face-to-face. Number two, if you spoke about someone and defamed their character in a group of three or four people, 
then you need to take a group, particularly that group of three or four, but if not that group, a group of three or four people with you when you make confession, at least as public as your offense. I think that's incredibly healing. Number two, start the change process. In other words, if you did something to hurt somebody, start to understand why you did it. Was it out of anger? Was it out of hurt? Was it out of uh, insecurity? Was it out of anxiety? Was Were you tired? What, what was, was it a misunderstanding? Start the change process and then not only understand why you did what you did, but start the, the process of making sure that will never happen again. Hey, do you need to go to therapy? And I'm not being cheeky. I'm serious. Uh, we have we have made therapy a negative thing for way too long in the body of Messiah. Start the change. Pro- change your friendships. Whatever needs to happen so that you don't do that thing ever again because that's what true repentance is, right? All right, we're going to get through numbers three through uh, five in the next segment. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. All right, guys, welcome back. So we are talking about five steps of repentance pulled from the writings of the Rambam and Mishneh Torah, his writings on repentance and Mishneh Torah. So the first is confession, own what you did, no hedging, at least as public as the offense. Number two, start the change process. Whatever it takes to ensure that you won't do that thing, that thing again, and not just to that person, but let that show a, 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 a you know flaw in your character that needs to be changed. Number three, amends are restoration. So again, the the we this is so challenging on so many levels. One of which is because we have a system in as I said before in our New Testament for for dealing with conflict within the body. Right, You go to that person, that person doesn't hear, you take friends with you, they don't hear, you take them before the elders, eventually, whatever. You know, right? We don't even do that. When's the last time you saw that, that scriptural uh, you know, plan of restoration actually acted out? We never do that. So asking us to do this, I know, is a far cry, right? This is, this is almost impossible to even expect. But what I want you to think through as we're talking about this is how much would the world be a better place if we actually treated one another like living stones um, of the temple. And we actually treated each other with the dignity that that we require and that we that we should. So if I hurt somebody, I want to confess without any defense. I did it. This is what I did. Period. Okay. No justification. Number two, I want to f- I want to figure out why I did that. Why do I hurt people in this way? Why did I hurt this person in that way? And I want to do whatever it takes to to change that part of my character. And before the break, I mentioned if you need therapy, therapy has been uh, demonized and it's been attacked and it's been you know in churches as you know well you just don't have enough faith if you need therapy or or whatever. And I'm telling you, there are some things that God has has shown to the psychiatric psychological world 
that he has not or that the, the church has not seen, that the body of faith has not seen. And we need that expertise. Many of us, and I'll say this, this might sound very toxic, but I'll say it. Many of us have have uh, damages, have trauma from the church, the very churches that were supposed to be our our, you know, salvation and our safe haven. We need th- some of us need therapy from church. There's a lot of those people, by the way, if you're listening to this thinking, what is this guy talking about? He should have never been involved in the churches he was in. Yeah, go just start listening to people and you will find there's more of me than you think there is. Some of you out there know what I'm saying. Number three, step number three is making amends or a restoration. And this is the part we really don't do well at as uh, as believers. This is actually replacing what you damaged. I mean, heck, we barely even go to each other for, you know, to ask forgiveness. We just go to God and God forgives us or we think he forgives us. He doesn't. That's not biblical. If you if you hurt somebody and then you ask God for forgiveness and you cry and snot about it and you really you feel forgiven, but you haven't fixed it with that other person, you're not forgiven. I don't care how you feel about it. You're not. It's not the word. We want to be serious about obeying the word and oh, the word of God, and the truth. OK, let's talk about the truth. Then if you snot and snobber before God over somebody that you hurt and you haven't fixed it with them, you are not forgiven. We have to make amends or restore what we broke. So in the Mishnah, there are five different types of uh, restoration or damages in uh, the Mishnah tractate Nezakin. Nezakin means damages. We have five different categories. Number one is physical damage. Did you physically hurt someone? Number two, pain and suffering. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Number three, medical costs. It's something that you do cause somebody to incur medical costs. That is a damage that you are responsible for. Uh, number four, loss of livelihood. Did you do, say, something that caused someone to lose time from work? Uh, and then lastly is humiliation. So, These are five different areas of damages that we should consider when we are making uh, when we are making teshuva with other people, not just saying, hey, man, I'm really sorry. And somebody going, it's okay, man, I forgive you and just going about it. No, if you value that person, you value that relationship, even if restoration or amends is not expected, this is part of the legal code of relationship and covenant. Here's a good point on amends and restoration. You don't decide for the victim what restoration looks like. They decide what restoration looks like. Number four. Number four, if you've been looking for it, we're finally here, making an apology. So the apology is not first. Most of us would put the apology first and go, hey, I'm sorry. I did what I did. And inside of that is the confession, right? But the apology, see, the apology comes now instead of first, because what have we done? We made a confession, and then what did we do? We started to work on ourselves, and we've also started to make amends or restorations, so we've really seen what our sin against that person cost them. 
when you start to make amends and you start to recover what you caused that person to lose, you get a really good understanding of what you did and and how much destruction you caused. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, if you if you have been, you know, talking nasty about a coworker and you've infected the office with some bias against this coworker and it's the 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 work environment has gotten so hostile that they can't even stand to come to work and they have to take a couple of days off then when you have to take money out of your check to pay their 2 days off and you have to make confession as public as you've debased them and you have to restore their their honor you you have to cover their humility uh, their uh, humiliation right the these you start to really get a sense of the fallout of what of what you've done right and that's the point so when you go to make so when you wait to make an apology you can make an apology based on the on the understanding of your transgression your apology it it's different at this point you begin to really identify with the person and their hurt. And that's a that's a huge deal. Right? That's a huge deal. All right, number five. Number five is make different choices next time. Again, as we read before, what is a Baal Teshuva? What is someone who is mastered Teshuva? Well, someone who is mastered Teshuva is someone who gets faced with the same challenge or temptation and does not commit it again not because of fear that they're going to be caught or fear of punishment but because they have actually changed as a human being and because teshuva is not just words or it's not just an act teshuva is a process these five steps of repentance because this is a process this process changes us as human beings and that's a big deal Make different choices. If you don't do the work to change, you'll always find yourself in the same situation, right? So that's a little bit on repentance, on teshuva, right? Now, I know that we only have so much cognitive bandwidth, and I've shared a lot of information with you so far. But I want to do this. I want to spend the rest of this Segment talking about the second half of or the the side B of this whole repentance thing, especially when it comes between people, and that's forgiveness, right? Um, we we have to make sure that we have both sides covered when we understand repentance and because forgiveness has been taught in a really toxic way, um, in in my experience, and. Giving forgiveness to someone who has offended you uh, has been has been uh, has been really harmful to a lot of people. And I'm not trying to be some like oh poor us. We, I mean, let's take uh, let's take the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter five, right? For instance, let's take the turn the other cheek teaching because this is probably my favorite. So. Yeshua says, if uh, you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek as well, right? And um, this is, my, my point in talking about forgiveness is that many of us have felt, many of you as well, have felt like 
in order to 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 have a good heart and have the right amount of faith and to be you know forgiven by God, you have to basically be a doormat where you just forgive freely and you don't expect any repentance from the other side. You don't expect any change. You don't expect any any you know coming your way. You don't expect anyone to understand why they hurt you. No, no, no. You just forgive freely. And you eat all that bitterness and you just, you know, you just take it and you just go. And it's caused a lot of challenges for, for folks. So the, the, the thing about being struck on the, the cheek, well, historically in the Roman world, your left hand was your potty hand, let's call it. Uh, it's the hand you, you know, you went to the bathroom with. If you were to strike someone on the right cheek, that means you would backhand them with your left hand, with your potty hand. This is a sign of ultimate disrespect. You don't even treat, you don't even hit the other person like they're a human being. So what is Yeshua saying? If they if if they hit you on the right cheek, which means they're going to hit you backhanded with their left hand, give them the other cheek as well, which means make them hit you like a human being with their right hand. And so this is not about forgiveness at all. This is not about you being a doormat and just letting people beat you senselessly. This is not about just letting people abuse you for no reason and just, well, you get turn the other cheek. No. What this whole teaching is about is make them hit you like a human being, and in doing so, you are pointing out their abusiveness. You're pointing out their injustice, and this is generally in a crowd of people, right? Yeshua is not condoning private abuse. That, that that is insane that we have even we've even pretended like that could be what's possible. A, a battered wife, a wife being abused by her husband. Well, you know, you just got to turn the other cheek. And what? What do you think if Yeshua, if Jesus was walking the earth this day, and he walked into a house where a woman was being beaten daily, you think he would say, "Well, my child, just turn the other cheek." What? He would drag that husband out and throw him out on his behind, and then he'd probably beat the tar out of him. We have it wrong. This is about showing injustice. The second part of this this parable, the other next part of this parable, says if 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 someone gets wants you to carry their pack one mile, carry it two. It's Roman law in the time of Yeshua that a Roman soldier can force a Jew who they saw as less than human. They can force them to carry their pack at least one mile, or the equivalent of one mile. And so what Yeshua is saying is if, if they force you to do it, you carry it too, which puts the Roman soldier now in danger of breaking the law. In other words, you're using it, – it's social disobedience, right? It's, it's, it's using – their manipulation, their abuse against them in a covert way. Because the Jewish people of Yeshua's time were looking for the king. They were looking for the, the righteous king that would that would rise up and defeat the Romans. And the truth is that the nation of Israel at the time of Yeshua was never going to defeat the Romans militarily by revolt ever. They, they tried several times. They were crushed every time. It was never going to happen. So what does Yeshua do? He teaches a subversive message. 
he teaches a subversive gospel in that he says, don't go head to head. Don't bow up against the Roman soldier when they ask you to carry their pack and you don't go to, you know, throw in hands and, and thinking you're going to win because they're going to beat you down. Then they're going to throw you in jail. Then your family's going to suffer and your whole life is over. But what you do is you take that pack and you carry it one mile and then you keep carrying it. This is not about being a servant. <laughs> this passage is not about being a servant. This passage is about revealing injustice. So you know what? You don't have to carry people's stuff longer just because you're trying to be a good servant. No, that's not how this works. If someone is publicly berating you, publicly humiliating you, you turn their injustice back on them. Don't get in a fistfight. You take it on the other cheek and show them to be even more of a heel than they actually are. These teachings in Matthew 5 are not about service and they're not about forgiveness. Yet the church has taught them in the way where, where people feel like they have to be doormats. And after all of this talk, after all of this talk about repentance requiring action and requiring change, all of a sudden we get to the Gospels and we say, well, that's not the message Yeshua teaches. He teaches a free forgiveness. Oh, man. One of the big lies of the church, one of the biggest lies of Christian doctrine and theology is that God's forgiveness is free. And that's how we should forgive. That's a lie. It's factually, it's scripturally inaccurate. We are all witnesses to the lie itself. How? Because what happens whenever you come to, you want to make Jesus your savior, you want to give your life to Yeshua. What happens? What's, what happens? You pray a prayer of what? Repentance. Where you what? Ask for forgiveness from your sins. Where you do what? You turn from your sins and you turn towards God. And most of the time, if not all the time, the understanding is that you are going to get forgiveness, but you have to give up your entire life and allegiance to Jesus, to Yeshua as the king. That doesn't sound free to me. What does it mean that God freely forgives? It means he is perched and ready. He's sitting on the edge of his seat, of his throne in heaven, waiting, waiting for those who will repent, for those who will change, for those who will give up everything. He's waiting, boom, instantly, immediately with forgiveness. But God doesn't forgive people who don't change who don't show an effort to change, who don't want to change, who don't surrender themselves. And my point is that we shouldn't either. If we're going to be really biblical and forgive like God forgives and forgive like Yeshua forgives, if we're going to be really biblical about it, then we should expect repentance and amends and change from the person who's receiving our forgiveness but not to lord it over them, but because we honor and respect that person and that relationship is important enough to us. Because what happens with free forgiveness, quote unquote, free forgiveness, is somebody hurts you and they come to you and they say, hey, I'm sorry. And you say, hey, you're, you're a good Christian person, you know, a good, you know, godly person, Christian person. You say, hey, I forgive you. That's what I'm supposed to do. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. 
if they really hurt you and you watch them and you don't see a change, you notice something starts happening in your own life. You can try to forget. You can try to 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 not you know let it take. You can try to to push against it. You can try so hard. You can pray. You can you can you know you can get counseling. You can do all the things, but something starts to happen in your heart. You start to get a little bitter because you gave forgiveness to that person, even though it might have released you from some bitterness and some expectation. When you gave them forgiveness, you expected them to change, and they didn't. So if you value that person, it's in their best interest for you not to give free forgiveness. Think about this as a parent. If you're a parent with your kids, we are seeing this happen real time. If we make things too easy for our children, they end up spoiled and obnoxious and lazy. Because that's not life. That's not reality. And so what we've created in some religious circles is we really created a system of, of biblical abuse. If, if that, that's not even a term, but we, we've used the Bible to create a legal system of abuse. Which goes against the teachings of Yeshua and the Torah. And we've created victims within our religious circles and we've created health, a health crisis where there, a mental health crisis where there should never have been one. And so God expects when he forgives us, he expects us to afterwards live a life worthy of that forgiveness and that salvation. We should re- we should treat each other with the same amount of respect and dignity. No, I'm not going to freely forgive you and let you off the hook. I want to see you change not only for me, yes, for me, because I'm owed that as the victim according to Scripture, but I want to see you change because I want you to do better. I believe in our friendship enough. I believe in our relationship enough. I believe in you as a nephesh, as a, a, a living being, a child of God, that I want to see better for you. So no, I'm not going to give you my free forgiveness. Remember at the beginning of the episode when I said, hey, don't lullaby effect on me and, and stick around because you've never heard some of this stuff before? This is the part. <laughs> this is part of the part. So I love, you know, I love... Judaism for a lot of reasons and the, and the thought, the philosophy and the practice and thought process behind so many things. Uh, one is because they have a way of making things really concrete. So there are three uh, types or categories of forgiveness uh, in Jewish law. Uh, one is called mechila. Mechila. This is very cool. This is very healing for me and I hope it will be for you. Mechila is when you forgo the other's indebtedness to you. So, by Torah law, by biblical law, when somebody offends you or hurts you, immediately they owe you. They owe you a debt, right? This is where the New Testament gets the idea of sin as debt, right? They owe you a debt. So, mechila is is just saying you don't owe me anything. This is not, listen very closely to this, this is not a reconciliation of heart or an embracing of the offender. It is simply reaching the conclusion that the person who offended you no longer owes you anything for whatever it was he or she did. This is the idea that most of us are taught that, well, forgiveness is not for them, it's for you. This is, this is that idea. 
but in a much more, to me, tactile way. It's not that I forgive you like I'm letting you off the hook. I'm just saying I recognize what you did. It's not like you didn't do it. You did it. It hurt. It broke our relationship. You don't owe me anything for it. But it doesn't mean that we're okay. It doesn't mean that we're reconciled. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden I love you again or I'm going to trust you again. It just means you don't owe me anything for that offense. And that's justifiable. That is Bible law. That's the way that forgiveness is done. Because I expect more out of you than that. It is not required. Mechila is not required if there is no genuine repentance. This mechila is a device. It is the it's the uh, mechanic that is the accountability to just easy forgiveness. Hey, listen, what do we call in Christian circles? What do we call it when people think that the gospel is God just forgives you and you can still do whatever you want? We call it greasy grace, right? We've taught that God is not a God of greasy grace, but we are to be people of greasy grace. Just forgive, it's fine. All right, number two is selicha. Selicha is an act of the heart. It is reaching for a deeper understanding of the sinner. It's achieving an empathy for the troubledness of the other. Selicha, too, is not a reconciliation or embracing of the offender. It's just reaching the conclusion that the offender, too, is human, frail, and deserving of sympathy. Now, let me say this. Once you have begun to heal, then you can salicha. Go ahead and go into salicha. But it's not required that you just immediately try to understand while you're still in your pain. Okay. And then the third level is kapara or tahara. This is atonement or purification. This is a total wiping away of all sinfulness. It is the existential cleansing. It is the ultimate form of forgiveness. But guess what? It can't be done by humans. Only God can do kapara. Hence, Yom Kippur. So I hope you have an easy fast. Bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.